Why were these Jewish leaders and their followers so determined to reject Jesus? That's a major question that people have asked for years. Why with all their familiarity with scripture and why with their close proximity to Jesus and observing his miracles, why, why didn't more Jewish people in his day accept him as Messiah? Why, why not? In fact, I remember my own mom years ago saying to me as I would witness to her, she said, you know, if Jesus was the Messiah, why wouldn't all the rabbis accept him? Now, eventually my mom did pray to receive Christ, but that was her attitude. If this is true, why, why have our people rejected him over the years? Must be something wrong with him. Can't be anything wrong with us. But that's not true. What is it that caused the people of Christ's day, who knew the Bible, far better than most of us know, why did they reject him? Well, the answer is really found in John chapter 3. Jonah and the people of Nineveh is filled with questions, at least as far as I'm concerned. You know, Jonah's message as he rolled through Nineveh was very simple. The people had a short amount of time to repent or God would destroy them. Of course, the book of Jonah tells us they did repent. But this is my question, why did they repent? They did not know the God of Israel. So I suppose another question would be, why Nineveh and why Jonah? Contrast that to the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They had God's revelation of who he was. They worshipped him. Jesus was right there bringing God's message of the kingdom. Yet most did not accept his message. Jesus had some stinging rebukes for his listeners in Matthew chapter 12. He told them in the judgment, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba would call them out for their refusal to accept Messiah. Sounds like an interesting program we have in front of us today. Let's listen as Pastor Steve continues teaching from Matthew chapter 12. After the Ninevites repent and God spares them judgment, Jonah, rather than rejoicing, he is angry at God. He wants to take his own life. That's what he says. And God says, are you justified in being angry? You know what Jonah says? I am. I am. Because I knew if I did this and preached to them, you're so compassionate, you would save these people. Now imagine, this is a preacher saying that. He hated these people. He wanted them to be judged. He felt they deserved it. They did deserve it. But God is merciful and compassionate and Jonah couldn't stand it. Finally, the message that they heard from Jonah was very limited. It was not about God's love. It was about God's judgment. There's nothing said about his love. It's just a message of doom, calling them to repentance. And yet, with all of these spiritual disadvantages, the Bible tells us they did repent at the preaching of Jonah. And God not only physically spared their lives, but he also saved their souls for all of eternity. Now, some people question that because eventually Nineveh was destroyed. And they say, aha, see, it uh, it means they, they didn't all repent. But they did. That generation repented. It was years later that other generations came along and did not follow in their footsteps, and God did destroy the city. But not now. They did repent, just as Scripture says. Now, in contrast to the Ninevites, the Jewish people of Christ's day, what did they have going for them? So many spiritual advantages. Unlike their pagan counterparts, these Jewish people were not ignorant of the one true God. 
they were the only nation entrusted, Paul tells us in the New Testament, with the oracles of God. They knew the truth. They were familiar with God's scripture. And the man who preached to them was so much greater than Jonah because he wasn't just a man. He was God himself, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who didn't despise people. He loved them. He offered them hope. He proclaimed salvation to them. He performed compassionate miracles to validate himself. Yet in spite of all of these advantages, they refused to repent. And the point that Jesus is making to these Jewish leaders and the religious generation that followed them is that they're, they're hard-hearted. They're hard-hearted. Up to this point, they've rejected all of his signs and he knows that they're going to reject the greatest sign is resurrection and therefore they will experience God's eternal judgment. And that's why Jesus said, and note this from the, from the verse we just looked at, he said, the men of Nineveh will rise up and condemn your generation. Now, the Lord didn't mean that the citizens of Nineveh are going to be the actual judges of the Jewish people in the sense that they'll be handing out eternal edicts. No, God will be the judge handing out an eternal sentence. Jesus simply meant that at the final judgment known in Scripture as the great white throne judgment, the men of Nineveh will be there. And they're going to stand up and they will testify against the Jewish people of Christ's day and they'll say something to the effect of you had so much going for you and you rejected and we had hardly anything and we believed. And we believe you have no excuse for your unbelief. No excuse for your unbelief. Because in spite of, of our spiritual disadvantages, we repented at the preaching of Jonah. You had Jesus Christ, the one who is the judge right here, who's about to judge you. You'll stand before him. You had him in your presence. And you said no. You said he was a blasphemer. You said he was satanic. You are without excuse. We had so little And yet we believed. And then God will sentence them to hell for all of eternity because they did not turn to Christ for salvation and they had the opportunity. But it won't only be the Ninevites that will stand up at the final judgment and accuse that that generation of rejecting Christ. Jesus went on in verse 42 to give another example of a Gentile pagan who was very responsive to divine truth in spite of being spiritually underprivileged. Notice verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. Now who is the queen of the south? She is referred to in the Bible as the queen of Sheba. The Queen of, of Sheba. That is not just an old movie made, that is in the Bible. She's the Queen of Sheba. Who we are told in First Kings chapter 10, she came from the far away country of the Sabians. That would have been about 1,400 miles southeast of Jerusalem. She came just to visit Solomon and to hear his wisdom. She had heard reports that this was the wisest man in the world, that this was a man of great riches because of his wisdom. This was a man who people uh, respected and heard from, and he was just incredibly wise. So she was so interested in hearing Solomon's wisdom that Jesus said that she she came from the ends of the earth just to listen to him. She brought her whole entourage to hear Solomon. But what the Lord is saying is that this pagan woman traveled all of these miles from the ends of the earth to come and hear Solomon, but I who speak to you am God. I'm greater than Solomon. I'm in your midst. I'm telling you the wisdom of of God's way of salvation and you don't want it. 
This pagan wanted Solomon's wisdom, which was divine wisdom, but it was given to Solomon. Jesus is wisdom. He doesn't get wisdom. He is wisdom incarnate. And he said, you're not interested. Therefore, she will rise up at the judgment and she will testify against that generation that she came to hear just a man and was responsive to truth. We'll see the Queen of Sheba in heaven someday. But this generation had Jesus right there, heard him teach, heard his wisdom, and they said no. And she'll say, you're without excuse. Now, the question is this. Why were these Jewish leaders and their followers so determined to reject Jesus? That's a major question that people have asked for years. Why with all their familiarity with Scripture and why with their close proximity to Jesus and observing his miracles, why, why didn't more Jewish people in his day accept him as Messiah? Why, why not? In fact, I remember my own mom years ago saying to me as I would witness to her, she said, you know, if Jesus was the Messiah, why wouldn't all the rabbis accept him? Now, eventually my mom did pray to receive Christ, but that was her attitude. If this is true, why, why have our people rejected him over the years? Must be something wrong with him. Can't be anything wrong with us. But that's not true. What is it that caused the people of Christ's day, who knew the Bible, far better than most of us know, why did they reject him? Well, the answer is really found in John chapter 3. The answer is found in John chapter 3. John, the apostle, spells it out clearly in John chapter 3 as he's quoting the Lord Jesus himself. John 3 verse 19. Jesus said, This is the judgment that the light, he is the light, has come into the world and men, note this, men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. The reason that the highly religious people of Christ's day refused to come to Jesus in repentance in spite of all of their exposure to biblical truth is simply because they love their sin and they refuse to forsake it. That's, that's why. Jesus said they love the darkness of their own behavior and rather than the light. So they refused to come in repentance because he is the light and they didn't want him to expose their evil hearts and evil deeds. Because in coming to Christ, that is necessary. You must repent. You must turn from the darkness of your deeds and turn to Christ for a new life in him. Folks, that's the bottom line reason why those who are very religious today react so passionately against Christ. I mean, why everybody does, but especially religious people. It's because they want to hold on to their sin. They love their sin. They're very comfortable in their sin. And they're frankly, they're very comfortable in their religious environment. That's a very secure feeling to have all kinds of outward legalistic rules. Anybody can do those rules. But you see, religion never touches the heart. Religion doesn't convict you of sin. Religion doesn't put its finger on your pride and lust and jealousy and covetousness and malice and say that's wrong. Religion says if you perform outwardly so as to impress others with just a list of do's and don'ts, you're fine. And that's very comfortable. That's very secure. Nobody really, unless the Lord works in their heart, wants that to be shaken up in their lives. They love their sin. They hold on to it. They'll continue to reject Christ unless the Lord does a work of grace in their heart. So, really, that is the first characteristic of religious unbelief that Jesus taught. It rejects Christ in spite of all the evidence. 
There is a second characteristic of religious unbelief. We obviously won't spend as much time on this, but you have probably never heard anything quite like this because this is a unique passage. And it's this truth. The first characteristic of religious unbelief, it just rejects Christ, even though there's all the evidence there. The second characteristic of religious unbelief is that religious unbelief leads to a deepening wickedness. It doesn't stay the same. It delves further into wickedness. Verses 43 and 44. And I know that when you read this for the first time, you'll say, what has this got to do with what we've just been studying? I'll try and tie it together for you. Jesus said, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my home or my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. This is a very unique statement. You, you won't find anything like this anywhere else in the Bible unless you have a parallel statement of this very passage. Very unique because it gives us insight into the movement of a demon that is seeking to find some place to permanently dwell. And as I said, at first glance, you say, well, what, what is this talking about? I mean, Jesus has just been telling these leaders about they're going to reject the sign of his resurrection, and all of a sudden he's talking about a demon looking to possess someone. Where's the connection, if any? There is a connection. Let me connect it for you. Remember that the initial incident that started this entire discussion and dialogue between the Pharisees and Christ was that Jesus had cast out a demon from a man. The crowd then wondered if that miracle of casting out that demon meant that Jesus was the Messiah. And the Pharisees said it did not. Because they said Jesus performed this miracle by Satan's power. He he is Beelzebul, Lord of the dung heap. And now Jesus, having initiated the dialogue because of the act of casting out a demon, now returns to the subject of demon possession, the very, the very subject that started this all. And he tells these scribes and Pharisees about the serious danger that they and the generation of religious people that followed them face in rejecting him. There are some serious consequences. First, he explains to them in verses 43 and 44, which we just read, what has been taking place, and note this, this is important, what has been taking place in Israel since he began his ministry of casting out demons from so many possessed people. He tells them that when a demon is cast out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. Now, why demons seek waterless places or desert, barren, dry areas, uh, I don't think it's really clear. I tried to do some research this week and find out about that, and I couldn't find a whole lot. So I don't know why they do that, but they do. But what is clear is that the kind of rest that demons seek comes about by them dwelling in living creatures, preferably human beings, but they'll take animals if they can, because we know that they were thrown into, cast into uh, swine, The pigs who then drowned themselves plunged into the Sea of Galilee. But demons are most satisfied when they live inside of a human being because it is in demon possession that they can most effectively express their wickedness in opposing God. So Jesus said that the path taken by a demon who was cast out of a man, and remember in Israel many people had had this, is that this evil spirit looks for another body to inhabit. But Jesus said if he doesn't find one, Then according to verse 44, the demon will return to the individual that he initially left, that he was cast out of, and he will possess him again. 
And that is precisely what the Lord is talking about in verse 44 when he said, then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. But notice what the demon will find when it returns home to possess the individual again. Jesus said in verse 44, and when it comes, it finds, that is the demon finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. That is to say that the demon finds that the individual he formerly possessed has cleaned up his Life. In other words, he's undergone some type of moral reformation by ridding himself of his past evil habits. Now, let me explain. When Jesus cast out demons from so many people, that didn't mean that they became believers. In fact, most did not become believers. Jesus must have cast out demons from thousands of people. They all didn't turn to him for salvation. They were just free of demons. And, and in one sense, their life was vastly improved. Their life was vastly improved apart from personal salvation in Christ. No longer did they uh, have these dominating sinful practices. There's also a, a sense in which the people, the nation was responsive to John the Baptist. He, he gave a message of repentance. Many repented, but that doesn't mean that they continued and then followed Christ. They just repented of, of their sin. They cleaned up their, their lives. It's nothing more than, than what we see today in self-improvement. That's really what it was. And what happened was not only did they improve and reform themselves, but now they were more religious than ever. Their condition, as Jesus put it, was that they were unoccupied, swept, and put in order. That's a house that looks good on the outside. But moral and religious reformation is a very dangerous condition to be in. Why? Jesus explains why in verse 45. Notice this. He said, Then it goes, that is the demon, and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That's the way it will be with this evil Generation. Jesus said that when a demon returns and finds a man's life religiously and morally reformed, he brings with him seven other demons more wicked than himself. So there must be a, some type of rank of wickedness in demons. And these demons, they now decide to indwell that morally reformed individual. And Jesus said he becomes worse off now than before he was inhabited by just one demon. And the Lord said that this is the way it will be with this entire evil generation. In other words, the religious generation of his peers, his contemporaries that rejected him, will be more influenced by Satan and will grow more wicked than ever in their behavior. What a profound truth. Let me me give you the principle here. Let me just give it to you in simple terms. Those who are heavily, heavily involved in organized religion, as well as those who have embraced some type of of religion of self-improvement, Apart from a relationship with Christ, they are heavily under the influence of Satan and his demons. Now, they don't have to foam at the mouth and fall down. They can be very, very smart. They can, they can uh, uh, look good on the outside, but they are more influenced by Satan than many of us think. And they are influenced by him in the sense that they have become more and more entrenched in self-righteousness, which is satanic. Believing that if they no longer outwardly manifest certain sins, then they are okay spiritually. They're all right. In other words, their their good outward behavior has blinded 
and desensitize them so that they don't see their need to turn to Christ and experience God's forgiveness because they don't think they have any need for forgiveness. That's the danger of religion. Religion, apart from the gospel, is all satanic anyway, and it is a form of self-righteousness. It oozes self-righteousness. That's the great danger of being religious without Christ. You are so influenced by Satan because you are more than ever morally self-satisfied with your outward life and you don't see how evil you really are on the inside. You don't see the evil attitudes of pride, covetousness, malice, deceitfulness, jealousy, lust, all of that. You don't see it. Satan has blinded you because you have delved more and more into self-righteous religion. And Satan dominates you without even... without. Religious people even being aware of it. Folks, that's the great danger. If you, if you are caught up in any type of moral reformation, religious experience, then consider yourself warned by Jesus Christ. Self-reformation leaves your life outwardly swept and looking good to others, which is exactly how the Pharisees liked it. They were whitewashed tombs, but inside those tombs, Jesus said, are dead men's bones. But you need to have a change but on the inside. You think you're okay because things look good on the outside, but on the inside, you need cleansing. You need a new heart that comes when you turn to Christ for salvation. And if you're a believer, then understand the real issue that you ought to be addressing is you need to recognize with religious people that they are self-righteous. They need to know that they're sinners. Tell them that. Deal with the issue of the heart. They are not good. None of us are. And they need salvation. Let's pray. If you have never trusted Christ, I, I urge you to do so. I, I urge you to understand this warning from Jesus. I urge you to think about this. This warning that you are being influenced by, by Satan. Thinking that because you follow a code of ethics, you have some outward legalistic rules that you obey, that you're alright. You're not alright. You're not alright. You need to be born again. Whitfield always preached that message, you must be born again. And somebody said to George Whitfield, the great evangelist, they said, why do you always preach that you must be born again? And his simple reply was, because you must be born again. There is no other way. You need an inner cleansing from sin, and that only comes through the blood of Christ, faith in his finished work on the cross. I urge you, turn from your sin, turn to him, believe the gospel that Christ died for sinners like you, and experience absolute, complete forgiveness. Father, thank you for your word. What an unusual portion of scripture. Thank you for giving us insight about demonic influence. Lord, we would, we would never understand it that way unless you revealed it to us. And we realize that sometimes people who are heavy, heavily into religion are not, not always good on the outside either. Sometimes they're very wicked on the outside, but by and large, they are self-righteous. And we pray, Lord, as many of us have opportunities to witness the self-righteous people, we pray that you'll help us to see through that and to uh, show them the holy standards of Scripture, even, even the Ten Commandments, which they've broken all of them as we have. But we thank you, Lord, that with believers we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We thank you for that. Thank you that in not having any of our own righteousness, we have had the righteousness of Christ put on our account. And we pray, Lord, for for those, even in our congregation, who may not understand that, that you'll open their hearts, their minds to the truth, bring them to yourself. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I usually have a touch of sadness when we come to the end of a series on verse by verse because 
I learned so much from Pastor Steve's teaching that I don't want it to end. Of course, we're going to start another series on the next verse-by-verse broadcast, so there's that. But before we close the door on this series, I would like to highlight something Pastor Steve was saying toward the end of our broadcast today. In essence, he was talking about the danger of self-helps. In other words, when we try to change our lives with our own strength, our own willpower. He used the illustration of a demon-possessed person who cleaned up their life after the demon left but did not replace the evil with God. In other words, they were left with a spiritual vacuum that in the end was far worse for them. How do we apply that? When we hear God's word and we are convicted by the truth, we must confess whatever sin God has highlighted in our lives and turn that over to the Holy Spirit. I hope you've been blessed by this series called Words Have Meaning. Of course, you can find the Verse by Verse podcast at versebyverseradio.org. I'll see you on the next series.